Well, I think the biggest thing is to recognize that only constant that we have in life is change. It's not a bad thing. And so your attitude about it makes a huge difference in whether you fear it and you harden against it or you embrace it. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Major General Barbara R. Holcomb to War Docs. General Holcomb served in the Army for 33 years as a leader in nursing, healthcare, research, and logistics. She deployed multiple times in several military operations, performing clinical and strategic leadership roles. She has commanded operational and TDA units at multiple levels and served as the 25th Chief of the Army Nurse Corps. You can learn more about her bio on wardocspodcast.com. In this episode, General Holcomb talks about her deployment experiences in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, Kosovo, and in Operations Iraqi Freedom and New Dawn. General Holcomb discusses the role of nurses in the military and some of the incredible opportunities available for nurse corps officers. She also describes many lessons learned and insights from the important role she played in Army medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Major General Barbara R. Holcomb to War Docs. Barb, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Happy to be here. General Holcomb, tell us a little bit about your pathway to becoming a nurse in the Army. Well, it wasn't really ever in my my initial goals. I wanted to be a nurse since I was about 10, but I went to school out at Seattle University and I needed a work-study job to help pay for school. So I started working in the military science department, which is the ROTC program. And I was a clerk typist and it was a part-time supposed to be just for one quarter. And they continued, they extended me through the year and I was able to attend a commissioning ceremony. And I thought, well, that's kind of cool, but really still didn't have a desire to join, even though there was some pressure from some of the cadre. But that summer, I finally realized that the scholarships and the grants that I had for the first year weren't enough to cover the next three years. And so at that same point, a three-year nursing ROTC scholarship opportunity opened up. So I applied for it, I got it and joined and the rest is history. So after your training in nursing school, you were assigned to Madigan Army Medical Center in the post-anesthesia care unit. After your nursing school training, did you feel prepared to do what they were expecting you to do at Madigan? And a follow-on is, is what does the military do to ensure that folks are ready to do what the military expects to do in nursing? I originally anticipated going into a med surge job because that's typically what every brand new nurse lieutenant does is go into a med surge job. But the nursing supervisor that was in charge of the critical care section had also graduated from Seattle University and she knew the caliber of the program. So she fully believed in my abilities to move into the the PACU. I did have to attend a six-week sort of mini ICU course, which was very helpful. And of course, that was after, I think, six-week preceptorship program that I had to go through as a new lieutenant. All new lieutenants went through at the time. So there was a lot of on-the-job training, but also having the additional critical care training was very helpful. I think we've changed over the years. And initially, there was a strong program, and then it sort of waned away to where nurses were just coming in and some of them were being deployed with a couple months in. And so we got back to a program, a clinical nurse transition program that's actually a six-month program that incorporates nurses moving throughout the hospital to different units and wards. It requires them to do a, a process improvement project or a research project at some point. And, and to keep them from deploying within that first six-month period, I think it's been a good stabilizing mechanism to help get the basics of nursing down because nursing school has changed also. And so I came in, you had a lot of nursing clinical practice on actual patients back then. And now, because of liability or whatever, a lot of nursing programs, the students aren't allowed to touch actual patients. They do a lot of simulated labs, but while it's very close, it's not the same as a real human being. 
So you got into the military through the Reserve Officer Training Corps, ROTC program. When you were going through nursing school, did you have any opportunities to visit or go to any military treatment facilities to see what military nursing was all about? I did. They gave us a tour down at Madigan just for took the nurses that were in the nursing program down there for a tour. So I was able to do that. But between my junior and senior year, they also had a the what they call the ROTC advance camp. And we did a couple of weeks at that time. It was Camp Perry, Ohio, doing sort of field infantry type training. And then we spent another six weeks at a military hospital. I was fortunate to go to Tripler. And so I spent six weeks in Tripler. And I worked, I had a preceptor. I worked the same shift as that preceptor. And that's where I really, really got some good hands-on skills. And I worked in the, the cardiac care unit at the time. So, And for those who don't know, that is a hardship tour in Hawaii, right? <laughs> it, it is, especially when you're young, single, and have no vehicle. <laughs> so you had some military-specific training that you had in addition to your nursing training. And those would be officer basic course, officer advanced course. And was was there any specific training at those courses in regards to nursing? And interestingly, you then became an instructor. And did you change what you were teaching based on your experience? So interestingly, I seem to always either be at the beginning of something or at the end of something. So I was at the last all nurse officer basic course. So that course was shaped primarily towards nurses to be prepare them to become army nurses. So there was a lot of nurse specific focus in that officer basic course. And I was also in the last six month officer advanced course. And so that one didn't have, as I recall, a nursing track, but we had a, a staff exercise called Musio. It was the medical units staff in operations, I think is what the Musio stood for, but it was a sort of a the logistics, the patient exercise, all the staff work that goes into coordinating patient transport and everything. And it was done on at Camp Bullis. It was a, I think, a week-long exercise where everybody was out there doing the, the staff work that they would do without actually having patients, but a lot of scenario training, which I found very helpful. But when I did go back as the nurse advisor for the officer basic course, I had deployed And because there was not a main focus within the OBC, we had a two-week nurse track. And that's where I focused. It was just with the nurses. And we focused on the paperwork, the green sheets, the white sheets. This is, again, before electronic medical records. Teaching and training, how to work with patients, a lot of field equipment training, debt meds training, things that I had had experience with. And I actually had slides of casualties from Desert Shield, Desert Storm. So we could talk through some of the things that you see, smell, hear that you don't normally get exposed to. So let's talk a little bit about the deployment experiences. You you deployed both to Desert Shield, Desert Storm, as you just said, and also later in OIF, OEF. And those operations were very different from each other. How would you say that the nurse-specific plans for each of those, the earlier one in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, how are they different? And how are they the same? So I think the clinical training was similar in that we did, uh, in both cases, more so probably in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, we did a lot of sort of round-robin scenario training prior to deployment. We had a six-week notice, basically. You're going to deploy. We don't know exactly when, but just waiting for flights and all of that. And I was a young lieutenant, and I was at the bedside. The OEF, OIF... We had been deploying at that point for eight years, nine years. And so a lot of our nurses had already deployed and they actually were probably better prepared than any of us had been in Desert Shield, Desert Storm. In Desert Shield, Desert Storm, we had one nurse who had been in Vietnam and nobody else had ever deployed. And so that just the experience of, of being in that environment was completely different because when we went to OEF or OIF OND, we had a lot of people who had previous deployments. So they had experience in that way. I think the other thing that was different was we went in, into a very unknown environment in D- Desert Shield, Desert Storm. We didn't know how long we would be there. We didn't know what was going to happen. It was just, we were 
our unit deployed in October. And so we were there for a couple months before anything happened. And then we stayed through April, but we didn't know how long we would be there or anything. So, and, and then we didn't go into a fixed facility. We moved several times, relocated. We didn't have weapons. The officers didn't have weapons because we were originally told we'd be on a safe Air Force base and we wouldn't need them. We never were on an Air Force base and we were always out in a, in a field environment. There was no pre-deployment site surveys. We just, you went into a completely unknown environment and we didn't have the communication and technology that we had during OEF, OIF. And so the OIF deployment was into a known area. The leadership team went over ahead of time to see what was there, what the mission was how it was changing, all of those things. So we had a much better idea of what we were getting into and could plan for it better. Do you have any particular interesting cases or memories from clinical experiences as a lieutenant when you were in the Desert Shield, Desert Storm? We spent a lot of downtime. Well, I shouldn't say that. Intermittently we did, but initially we went out and we set up and we were supporting the 24th Infantry Division while they were doing training for the mission in the Saudi Desert. And there was, we were doing sick call for them. There were a lot of accidents. So we got some experience that way. But the most memorable is after a two and a half day convoy of 300 or 604 or 605 vehicles, two and a half days in the back of a, a two and a half ton truck or a five ton, depending on which vehicle you got, we set up our debt med or debt meds at the same time because we had transition from the must hospital to the debt meds hospital while we were over there. We set it up at night in six hours and we immediately started receiving casualties. But the casualties were mostly Iraqi civilians. Their wounds were two to three days old. So we had all these people coming in, didn't know what we were doing with them because we didn't know where to send them. We ended up seeing about 73 patients in a two and a half, three hour period. And then we got another wave of 10 American casualties who were clearing a weapons cache. It was an engineer unit that several of them got injured. And, and one of them in particular came in, he had picked up a, it was, I guess it was a grenade. It was shaped like a bell. They described it and, and uh, he had both hands were completely blown off and they'd put tourniquets on his arms. And then he had a piece of shrapnel that had gone through his dog tags and pierced his heart. And so he, they got him to the OR, but he, he didn't survive because of the shrapnel, but it just stuff you'd never see. I remember opening a trash can and there was a foot in there that had been a, an amputation in the, in the EMT of an Iraqi who had just a horribly dirty gaping wound. There was just, there was nothing to do other than, than amputate it, but just things that you would never expect to see necessarily, or you would never see in a fixed facility, things that we saw and did over there. So if we were to fast forward from now, 10 years, we may encounter the same situation where there are people who've, the unit may only have one or two people that have deployed. What advice would you give to a new lieutenant nurse that was going out into a, the first deployment and a unit that had very little combat experience in total? I would say learn to nurse with your senses. So eyes, ears, hands, don't rely on technology, don't rely on monitors, don't rely on vital signs machines. Learn how to look for the signs and symptoms of infection, the hypovolemic shock, the pain management, all of those things that we tend to forget when, when we're in a facility with all the bells and whistles because we have machines and alarms that tell us when something's wrong. And we're not necessarily going to have that in, in these austere environments. And you're going to be probably holding patients longer than we've experienced in the previous deployments. So learning to nurse or remembering to nurse with your senses, learning how to count IV drips and things that we just don't do these days. So in the late 90s, you then decided to pursue further education in both your military career with the Command and General Staff College, and then also at the University of Kansas School of Nursing, where you obtained a master's degree in nursing administration and a master's certification in outcomes management. Tell us about that period being a student mid-career and how your advanced degrees benefited the military. 
So I went to Command and General Staff College first, which was quite a change. I had just come out of company command. So it was a completely different pace, but it was it was a great learning opportunity to learn more about Big Army, interact with some of the, the combat arms, combat support folks, and, and learn what they did and how they did it, and then how we, the medical, fit into that role or into that scenario. The master's degree, I had originally requested to go to a program for emergency nursing, be a nurse, emergency nurse clinical specialist. And the Army said, yes, we'll send you to your master's program, but we want you to do nursing administration. So I was kind of doing it, I don't want to say reluctantly, it wasn't, was it wouldn't have been my first choice, but it gave me an opportunity to sort of learn the skills that I would need later on, but I didn't know I would need them, if that makes sense. I think that I was one of the older students in the, the master's program. I hadn't been in a civilian education system for, I don't know, 11 years or so at that point. So there was a learning curve getting back to, to the studies and the books. And I think I was able to to contribute a little bit to the younger students because I had different levels of experience. But I think ultimately both of those together helped me see the bigger picture, helped my critical thinking skills, and just broadened those, my perspective a lot. Would you say that's the average pathway of an Army nurse as they get mid-careers to go obtain an advanced degree? It is. In fact, for most, it's sort of the norm. And if you don't have one, you're not as competitive for promotion. By the time you're a lieutenant colonel, you have a master's degree. It's just sort of one of those things. I think the important thing is to to figure out what type of degree you want, whether it's a a doctorate, whether it's a advanced nurse practice degree or something in the administrative or clinical area. In the early 2000s, you served as the chief nurse for the 67th Combat Support Hospital in Europe and northern Macedonia. And that was a time where 9-11 occurred and changed a lot of people's worlds. How did it change yours? So for clarification, I was the chief nurse for the Department of Outlying Health Clinics at Würzburg, and I was assigned to the 67th CASH. And I deployed as the clinic commander to co- to Macedonia at Camp Abel Sentry. So not the overall chief nurse of the, the combat support hospital. The experience of being in Europe during 9-11 was, was very interesting because it affected us personally, but we were so far away from it. I really remember the walking down the hallway to an award ceremony for a physician who was leaving the next day. So Supposedly, he didn't actually go the next day, but and seeing people looking at the TV and and then coming back down the hallway after the award ceremony and seeing the the second plane and and just at our commander at the time was in DC, so our our acting commander um, took charge and we figured out a plan of of having a quick reaction force and and just trying to anticipate what could happen along security lines and all of those things, but. It was a, an opportunity for everyone to pull together. And I have to say, I lived in a German village and I, I remember our, our landlord coming out and expressing his sympathies and just condolences and everything for, for what we had been through. And, and many were very, very supportive of the Americans at that period of time. I don't think it necessarily changed what we did clinically. It uh, changed how we did force protection. It changed a little bit about how we traveled, increased security, those kinds of things. So you then served as the chief nurse and executive officer for the 14th Field Hospital, an operational unit at Fort Benning, Georgia, and then later as chief of nursing at the brick and mortar hospital, Darnell Hospital at Fort Hood. How are the preparation and priorities of these assignments different? Well, the the 14th Field Hospital, while I was there, transitioned into a fort, the 14th CASH. And so as a field hospital, it was a caretaker unit. It was a very small staff. And it was, it was more of the XO job they focused on just because we, there were no patients. There was no, there was very little training. It was really about taking care, care of the equipment. As we transitioned into the CASH, it was learning how to grow learning how to add more people, 
increasing our space, doing working with facilities to find a new space and to do office planning and and figure out warehouse space and parking space, all that kind of stuff for increasing the size of the organization. So we didn't deploy at all during my time at the cash. It was just a lot of of change with regard to the the type of unit that it it had become. Was I prepared for that? I had done some facility planning at a previous assignment at Fort Huachuca. So I had a little bit of experience with the facility side of things, but it was also an opportunity to learn how to work with a staff, your young lieutenants who were your S1, 2, 3, 4, and and sort of figure out, it was really my first assignment as a field grade in a sort of a standalone unit. So it was chief of nursing administration at Darnall. And that brought me back to the inpatient setting. So I had been outpatient at that point for many years and focused on clinics and primary care and that sort of thing. So being the chief of nursing administration was sort of the day-to-day operations of the inpatient facility with with a little bit of exposure to the outpatient. So learning what labor and delivery did and, and at, at Darnall, that's what they do is bones and babies and, and behavioral health, essentially. So those were things that I had not been exposed to. But, you know, you, you learn that stuff just by talking to people, talking to the staff, learning what they need. I don't think that part really, it wasn't necessarily the clinical skills that I needed to know. It was how to build teams and how to find the resources that they needed to do their jobs. So you really had the opportunity to do that at a, even a higher level when you took command of the 21st Combat Support Hospital in June of 2009. And that cash did deploy to Operation Iraqi Freedom and New Dawn. And one of the things that a lot of people don't recognize is how caches were divided once they got into the country. And I know I was part of that unit and I was stationed in Balad, an Air Force base, and that cash was dispersed across the country. How do you manage to maintain unit cohesiveness in that environment? And how can you be an effective leader when it's so dispersed? It's a real challenge. Fortunately, we had VTC capability. We had bones that worked things that we hadn't had in, in previous deployments. And I did a lot of battlefield circulation. I split up my deputy staff. So at each site, we had three main sites. My DCA was at one, my DCCS was at another, and my DCN was at the third. And they were the OIC of those locations. But they were also able to kind of travel around and meet with their respective staffs, have meetings do by VTC, that kind of thing, to keep in touch with with everyone because all three sites had different different missions up at Mosul they had a lot more uh, combat casualties than they did in Al Assad Al Assad was very much primary care with the with really one exception and then Camp Spiker which is where my headquarters was had a little bit of both the other thing that we did was we had to relocate during I guess it was July we had to move out of the the hospital facility that we were in at Cobb Spiker and turn that area over to the Iraqi Air Force. So we had to build a new facility, essentially. So we went back from a sort of a fixed facility back to a debt meds facility. And I had folks who did that planning and we did it at night because Iraq in July is very hot during the day. So we did it at night. We had to make decisions about do we keep the CT scan or not? There were there were some major decisions that involved a lot of people. And so, again, the battlefield circulation, the, the talking, the communicating was really the only way to do it. But when we did that move, we brought different folks from each location to help with it so that they all kind of felt part of the of the solution. But that was a real challenge. Do you have any memorable experiences that you had during a deployment? And maybe as tell us one when you were the commander that you would use an example to explain to other people what we're for as war docs. So a couple came to mind when I was was thinking about this. There was Kosovo or Macedonia. It was uh, the portal into Kosovo. So everybody who deployed into Kosovo came through Camp April Century. It was a point of embarkation and debarkation, so to speak. And we had a small clinic. We had two primary care docs and a PA. 
and we did some training with our ambulance, our medics. We would set up a scenario and send them out to a call that they would respond and and to develop that skill set and response time. And there was an Air Force unit located with us and one of the Air Force medics helped with that training. He was a patient occasionally. And then we got a call for somebody down in the gym and it was that Air Force medic. And we ended up doing, he went into cardiac arrest and we ended up doing a code on him. And then a couple of weeks later, there was another specialist who collapsed after doing his PT test. And again, we ended up doing cardiac arrest, CPR protocols, ACLS, all of that. And those were sort of unexpected. I mean, when you go to a combat zone, you expect to see casualties. You expect to have deaths. That type of deployment that we were on, because it was not in the combat area, so to speak, there hadn't been any deaths prior. There weren't any after. We just had the misfortune of having two, but we tried to to make them survive or help them survive or whatever. And so even though you don't, you spend a lot of downtime, we're there so that we can be there when we are, we're needed, I guess. I, it's, I, I often heard the frustration of staffs who, when they didn't have casualties, they didn't have patients, they were frustrated by the boredom and, and, and that's all understandable. But I think when it happens, everybody looks to you to, to fix it and you being that medical facility. And it's just, it's, it's random. In a lot of cases, especially with the accidents, injuries, those kinds of things, if you're going out to a firefight, you sort of, sort of expect there'll be casualties coming back. And so we would coordinate, especially in the Iraq area, we were co-located with the 3rd ID and the 4th ID division headquarters. I went to their meetings. I knew what their, their planning or when they were going out, those sorts of things. So we kind of knew when to be prepared and, and, and such, but it's those unexpected, unplanned events that I think we're there and we have to be prepared for. So as a leader in a unit that experienced that, especially a medical unit where one of your own, you're there to keep people alive and one of your own suffers a tragic cardiac event and doesn't make it. How as a leader, how do you help your unit respond to that? So we did a lot of of sort of after action, critical event, stress debriefing process of talking, going through what happened, what we did, sort of the the autopsy of the the code itself. We had folks, in fact, the commander for Task Force Med Falcon was at Camp Abel Century during one of the events. And so we grabbed him and and he helped as well. But a lot of talking. A lot of communicating, checking on people. It was a small group, but everybody knew him. And and we had a lot of support from the the base command staff too. They they knew him as well. And and so it was a loss sort of for everybody. One of the interesting assignments you had in your career was being the Army Nurse Corps branch chief at Fort Knox. Tell us a little bit about the role of the branch chief and what kind of major issues are facing the nurse corps from an assignment and personnel perspective? So the branch chief was to help human resources command, make sure that people were in the right place at the right time. And ideally, the right people were in the right place at the right time as far as assignments. And and so it was a balance of supervising the the nurse corps officers that worked on my team as they they focused on different specialties, age managed, sort of a different population, helping them see where people could go to develop skills. And then I had my own population of the colonels to manage and sort of identifying people's strengths and weaknesses and where they needed to develop. It was sort of the beginning stages of talent management from my perspective of of getting people into maybe out of their comfort zone into areas where they had never worked so that they could learn and broaden their skill set. I would talk personally, I would talk with the commanders at hospitals to see what did you want in your your chief nurse? What skills are you missing that you need to add to the team? Those kind of things so we we could mix and match. So there was that aspect of it, but there were also things with promotion boards, getting people prepared for promotions, 
identifying career shortages in, in different specialty areas, recruiting, retention, all of those things that come into play as part of the Human Resources Command. So I was just barely there. I wasn't even there a full year. And so it's sort of one of those jobs where it's cyclical. So everything happens at a certain point during the year. I only got to experience each thing once and didn't make the, have the opportunity to experience again to see if we could make changes or improve. But it was certainly a, another broadening opportunity. And it was a great opportunity to learn the skill sets that we had out in the, the nurse corps. So does the nurse corps, do they interact with a consultant that sort of tries to place people or is it mainly with HRC? So at that point, we, the nurse corps did it differently than the medical corps who uses their consultants a lot. We had consultants, but they were, they didn't really participate in the assignments process. They were more in the skill development, leader development of those populations rather than assignments. So the assignments were more in the branch manager arena. So you then commanded Lawnstuhl Hospital in Germany in 2012. Tell us about that command and what were the major challenges facing the hospital in the 2012 time period? There were still casualties coming in from Iraq and Afghanistan, although we only had three planes a week instead of typically one every day or a couple times a day. I think the biggest challenge at that point was budget. And quite honestly, I took command and, and my predecessor told me, okay, you've got, I took it in May and by fall, I had to find $10 million to save and then another 20 the following year. And he had been in the command prior to me. So suddenly I had to find the $10 million. But it was when the five-year rule changed over in Germany where we had had civilians who were able to extend. Some of them had been there 20 years and there had been medical or exemptions for medical people to stay beyond five years, that changed. So there was a, a lot of turmoil. There was a cost of living allowance issue that came up where suddenly people had been getting paid that weren't supposed to be getting paid. And I mean, it was a resource finance DFAS issue. We were planning for the government shutdown. And so giving people furlough notices and, and it was just a lot of personnel challenges in the form of resources and resource management because we still had this mission. The sense of mission and purpose was phenomenal there. We had Navy, we had Air Force, we had Army, and everybody worked together. There was no power struggles. There was just everybody was focused on the casualties and the mission. And so some of the the administrative stuff sort of felt like it got in the way, but it was as important just because of of being in the process of transitioning to a, a time after war. So how did your training and experience prepare you to be the CEO of a hospital? I mean, I can't imagine myself as a doctor going into a role and saying, hey, your first job is to cut $10 million off the budget. That's why you have a staff and that's why you listen to your expert staff. But so back to my master's degree, the nursing administration master's program helped me with some of those skills to see the bigger picture, to know there were there was more than just nursing that I had to look at and involve. Uh, so logistics, facilities, those sorts of things that that came into play. I think it helped me learn to problem solve or manage complex problems. It helped me with team building. Um, sharing resources, cross training, and and those kinds of things. Learning to to adapt in leaner times, if you will. All the previous experiences culminated sort of at that role. So I've heard that leading doctors sometimes is like herding cats. How was how was your ex experience in that regard? I don't think it was difficult. I mean, they might have had had issues with it, but. It, I think listening to them, understanding their concerns, making sure they have the, the training and the resources, the personnel, all the stuff that they need, or, or most of the stuff they need, not what they want necessarily, but what they need, it makes a huge difference. Just I learned over the years that letting people know their value to the organization goes a long way. And so I think including them as part of the team, not as special or, or needy or anything that, that sometimes you hear, but making them a part of the team. I don't think they were particularly difficult at all. 
In 2014, you became the commanding general of the Southern Regional Medical Command, which then changed to Regional Health Command Central. Tell us first what that actually means. And then second, what was your biggest challenge during that time? Southern Regional Medical Command had an area of land essentially within the continental United States that had different medical treatment facilities, hospitals and clinics, and it was in a certain region. And then the regions changed. And so instead of having all of those hospitals, we changed to have a focus on different hospitals. So it was basically giving up uh, some of the hospitals and transitioning them to a different command. So Regional Health Command Atlantic, and then taking on the hospitals that had been part of Regional Health Command Pacific or West, I guess, at the time. And so a lot of, again, change and transition where you're letting go of some folks and some facilities and gaining others. And again, helping build the teams, that helping them transition, bringing them on board, helping them to learn processes and pre procedures, just supporting a lot of... You wouldn't necessarily think that the changes at the higher headquarter level really make that much impact on the staffs at the hospital. And it shouldn't have made a huge impact. It sort of just depended on how those command teams handled it. And so a lot of coaching, teaching, mentoring of those teams to to help them in those transition periods. So I think that was the biggest challenge is just helping people see through change and understanding that it wasn't a bad thing. It's just hard for for some. So one of the other hats that you wore during that time was the chief of the U.S. Army Nurse Corps, where you're basically the shepherd for Army nurses that are in every aspect of the Army and the military. What were some challenges in that role and, and what kind of things did you accomplish during your time as the Corps chief? I think the biggest challenge was carving out time to focus on nursing issues. It was it was active duty, it was reserve component, and it was really the civilian nurse corps as well. And so finding the time between the, the regional health command job, the, the deputy commanding general for operations for MedCom, and then at Medical Research and Material Command, of having that additional hat as the chief of the nurse corps and carving out the time needed to focus on on those issues. I think the biggest challenges were and and really still are civilian pay parity. We've got an aging workforce. We don't have a good plan to fulfill all of those requirements that we have for civilian nurses. We rely heavily on civilian nursing staff, especially in our fixed facilities, because our military nurses can can deploy at a moment's notice. And we've seen that through the years of combat, as well as through COVID, sending out teams of nurses to help address COVID. And, and so the, nur the civilian nursing staff is, is left behind. Coming out of OEF, OIF, retention was a big issue for nurses, especially at the captain major level of, I mean, it's a decision point for a lot of them, whether they stay and make it a career or whether they, they go. It's also a point where a lot of the female nurses decide whether they're going to have a baby or not, have a family, and then helping balance that. So retention and, and recruiting were big issues. And then we got into a lot of specialty and skill identification programs because Congress decided during that time that we had too many military medical staff and, and we were supposed to take a bunch of cuts and, and trying to figure out who took the cuts and, and were there any specialties that weren't needed. Their focus was on, do you have a wartime skill? And so quite a few challenges, accomplishments. I'm not sure, quite honestly, that there was anything significant other than trying to help recognize and, and support the day-to-day -day staff on my nurse corps team that were, were working through the issues, coming up with plans and, and helping manage those, those different issues. I think if I could do anything over, given the time, I would focus more on that role than I felt like I was able to going through it. One of our primary priorities as medical providers is taking care of the patient through direct care. How are military nurses able to keep in touch with that patient care at the bedside as they advance in rank and strategic roles? It's a challenge. 
I was an ACLS instructor, a BLS instructor, and did some TNCC, Trauma Nurse Corps course instructing. So probably through the time that I was a lieutenant colonel, I was able to maintain skills by doing that kind of, of teaching and training. I was able at the colonel level to help with bed management, to help with supervising, making rounds within the hospital at, at Darnall in particular. So I was able to to do the, you hear management by walking around, but really that's where you learn what the challenges are, what resources are short, those kinds of things. When I got into the general officer level, it was it was much, much harder, really to the point where I, I didn't do much more than visit facilities, talk to the nurses, do some leader development training, that kind of thing. But the clinical piece, for me, it was very hard to manage at that level. I think for a lot of nurses, it's a choice. Some are tired of bedside, and so they want to do something different. Others want to stay at bedside, and they don't want to move into the managerial roles. I think every role involves leadership. And so the the bedside nurse is a leader for that patient and the family. But the chief nurse role, for example, they have to make a choice. And I think, and I encouraged that when I was at HRC as the branch chief, I encouraged them all to do at least two days of, of clinical training or if nothing else, go in and visit your staff at night, you know, on night shift or on weekends to see what what's really happening and what's going on in, in the facilities at those hours. But I think for the most part, it's a choice. And I, if I, again, going back to the, if I could do it over again, I would, I don't know how I would do it, given knowing what I went through, but I would try and carve out some time to be back at the bedside. I've actually been able to go back and and re- refresh my Texas nursing license. And so I do a shift at Bamsey in the ER once a week, just as a volunteer to keep my license current. But I've learned so much and I've realized how much I had forgotten over the years away. But it quite honestly, the most fulfilling day of my week to be able to get back to the bedside. So when you go back to Bamsey and volunteer, do you ever cross paths with some of the lieutenant nurses that you had who are now the Leaders of the emergency room? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the chief nurse who I talked to about going through the preceptorship program and getting my my nursing license, I was still active duty at the time. He was in my very first officer basic course class and I was the nurse advisor. He's like, sure, you can come. You want to work in the ER? So yeah, I, I do run into a lot of them. And, and quite honestly, I run into several of the physicians that were deployed with the 21st cash. And yeah, you, know, you just, there's a lot of, I, I tried to keep it low key. And I just I introduce myself to patients as I'm Barb, I'll be your nurse today. But the staff figured it out pretty quickly. And it was mostly the the physicians that that recognized me and said, oh, what are you doing here? So it's when they call the trauma bay to attention. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't. We don't do that. <laughs> we just try and keep it low key so that the focus is on on the patients. So you served as a commanding general for the United States Army Medical Research and Materiel Command at Fort Detrick. And we've talked to some other guests who had that same position. They said it was just an amazing, eye-opening experience. And there's a lot of awesome stuff that happens in that unit. Tell us about your time there. It was a phenomenal experience. The last, really the last three years of my my career, it was challenging command. At the time, it was worldwide, a lot of interagency work because I was the commander. I was also the senior commander for the installation at Fort Detrick. And so a lot of things that went hand in hand, MRMC was the largest unit on the installation, but a lot of really, really, really smart people working in, in all the different labs. And it, it was a full spectrum of concept to the research, to the product or the vaccine or the technology that they were developing. And getting it fielded through the USAMA, the the Medical Material Management Agency, to get it out to the field and into the hands of the the warfighter or into the hands of the the combat support hospital or the field hospital. So just the full spectrum and and so much stuff going on, ideas that, yeah, in, in my wildest dreams, I would never have thought of doing. But the focus was on improving outcomes for combat casualties, burns, infectious disease. So trauma research, military operational medicine, how to fight in 
high altitude, cold weather environments or the opposite hot desert. It just is such a, a wide multitude of things that they focus on. I think the the challenge was it was great until uh, the secretary of the army asked the question, why is medical logistics under or not under army materiel command? Why is it under MedCom? And we went through a huge effort to explain and answer that question. And in the end, he said, this was a Friday afternoon. He said, okay, Monday morning, MRMC will no longer fall under MedCom. It will fall under Army Material Command. And then you'll figure out how to split yourself so that Army Material Command manages all of the medical logistics and Army Futures Command, which had just stood up, will manage all of the medical research. So the last 18 months was really figuring out how to split, how to, how to split the command, how to break away the medical material piece and stand up a, a logistics command that fell under AMC. And then by congressional directive, all of it was supposed to go under the Defense Health Agency. And so we were, we were doing a lot of problem solving, expectation management, controlling the fears of change or at least trying to minimize the fears of change for the staff that had been there. And it was it was a really, really high-performing team. But they just, they went through a tremendous change and are still undergoing change because right now it's Medical Research and Development Command, and they've just realigned under Defense Health Agency. So in the last three years, they've been under, they're on their fourth higher headquarters, and everybody has different expectations. But the command itself was phenomenal. It's just a, it's an amazing organization. And when you think about the things that they produce, the adenovirus for a basic trainees, the vaccine that they get or the, the medication they get for that, every malaria drug vaccine has, that's ever been produced came through MRMC or came out of the Walter Reed Army Institute for Research. And then the opportunities to just travel and see the different organizations all over the world that we have. It was it was a great way to to end the career. Okay, so you have had more transitions than I think any guest we've had thus far. The field hospital went to the combat support hospital. The regional health commands changed from south to central. And then you had to realign with the medical material command. What advice would you give somebody who has to lead through all these different transitions? Well, I think the biggest thing is to recognize that only constant that we have in life is change. It's not a bad thing. And so your attitude about it makes a huge difference in whether you fear it and you harden against it or you embrace it. It's easy to get comfortable there were certainly, as wonderful as organization as MRMC was, there were things that needed fixed. And people within the organization recognized it. So I allowed them the opportunity, I guess, before all the, the big change was directed, to identify those problems and start fixing them. And so they were already sort of transitioning some things because they recognized the need for change. So sometimes you you just have to ask the questions. And I would typically do that going into an organization. What's three things that are good, three things that are bad, and what needs to be fixed immediately? What can be done a year from now? And, and what should we leave alone? And I would get well, certainly a, a variety of answers, but it, it helped get buy-in from the very beginning. But again, attitude and understanding and recognizing that change is a constant. So what would you tell a 17 or 18-year-old Barb Holcomb, who's super pumped about being a nurse, about the opportunities about being a nurse in the military? I think just the level of experience or the opportunities for experience are limitless, really. You get great nursing experience. You get life experience, life skills. You learn to be a part of a team. There's certainly the tangible benefit of a reliable paycheck or usually reliable paycheck if Congress does their work, health insurance, medical care, dental care, those kinds of things that, that you don't always get. But you also get the opportunity to experience new things. I think back to some of my civilian or my counterparts, their schools, nursing school peers, and, and they would take a job and they would be in that same job for 20 years. And that's okay. I 
get bored easily. So I liked the opportunity to change. And if if there was something that was frustrating about a situation, you always knew that either you would leave or they would leave. And so everything was temporary. And so you just learn to be flexible and adapt to the situation, but just gives you those skill sets and those experiences that I don't think you would ever get on the civilian side. And I think the other thing, just if I could add on, is the the teaching facilities that we have, that having the residents in, in many of our facilities, I learned so much as a new nurse, working with residents, listening as they talk through their learning processes, talking with the staff, and just getting that opportunity to to learn from that aspect as well. You've had an amazing career. Tell us what your most memorable military experience was. Oh, gosh. I mean, there were so many and and some really great opportunities, but I think I have to go back to the ER at Madigan where I, where I, I didn't, I didn't start there. I transitioned to the ER from the PACU, but just the ability to make a difference in people's lives. I like solving puzzles. So the ER, people come in with an unknown and, and you're part of the, the puzzle solving team to figure out what's going on with them and help them stabilize. And I, I think there are certainly patient episodes that I that stick in my mind. I mean, there was one night that it was really, really, I worked a lot of night shift. It was really, really busy. And at the end of the shift, the senior resident at the time gathered everybody together because it just, the team had clicked that night. In spite of all the chaos, everything going on, it just worked. And, and I think at that point, I really felt like competent like I actually knew what I was doing and that I could, I could make a difference. So when the history books are written 50, 100 years from now, what would you want your legacy in military medicine to be? I think I tried to focus on the people and the mission and giving them the resources, helping them with the skills they needed to make a difference. I honestly didn't really do anything to get promoted. I never requested a specific assignment or a location or whatever. It was just, I wanted to be flexible and and do whatever I could to meet the Army's needs. But I think the the most rewarding part is watching the young lieutenants that came through my officer basic course grow and develop into being the senior leaders of the, the medical command. And that's been the most rewarding. But I think trying to make a difference in helping younger or junior leaders, whether they be officer, NCO, or enlisted, helping them grow and develop. So we've been speaking with retired Army Major General Barbara Holcomb on Wardock's podcast. Barb, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to this nation. You're welcome. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share my story and honestly honored to that you would think to have me on the program. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.